That's the good news right there in that song, all wrapped up and packaged nicely for you. That's the, that's the message we take to our family and our friends and the people in our offices and our workplaces. That's the message that has transformed our lives. Jesus Christ came to live among us, died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, victorious over the grave, and is coming back to get us to be with him forever. That's the gospel message, the good news message that we proclaim. The other day I was watching um, a documentary on the tsunami that took place um, about five and a half years ago. Maybe some of you saw it. It um, took place in uh, the Indian Ocean perimeter. And uh, I remember it very well. It was 2004. It was Boxing Day. Most of you probably remember because that was quite a dramatic event. And um, I remember hearing that um, 250,000 people were killed. That's the equivalent of 500 jumbo jets going down in one day. And um, I also remember, although I gave a passing notice of it, um, I was distant from the grief and went on with the day's activities. It was Boxing Day, therefore there were many family celebrations. I I remember as well that there was on the news lots of sterile information about the science of tsunamis and intellectual explanations about the constructs of a tsunami the debates concerning its mechanism and all of that. I remember all of that, but was frankly unmoved until the other night. That documentary actually took me into the story. It tracked one father, a guy like me, and one daughter, a girl like Bronwyn, and a holiday in Thailand. And then, as I watched it, the general event got very specific. It came close. It was just one story of another 249,999 stories. But it was more than I could take. Because a guy like me didn't get to take pictures of the graduation of his daughter like Bronwyn. He didn't get to uh, walk her down the aisle and give her away in her wedding day. He took her on a holiday and ended up standing by the side of her grave because she was dead. You know... It occurred to me that what didn't help that man was um, the various discussions on the construct of a tsunami, all the scientific and intellectual discussions, reading reports about earthquakes under the ocean and what they can do. None of that helped him. He was just hurt. I got to thinking about the Thessalonian believers, you know, and the tragedies that were happening in their lives. Just like some of the stories in our own lives. 
And I wondered if, um, if perhaps as the Apostle Paul had been away from Thessalonica for a while, if he was getting reports like something like this. Hey, Paul, remember Jason's dad? Remember that man who really loved God? Loved you? He died. Remember that, that fine woman of God named Athenia who, who was such a prayer warrior? She's been praying for you every single day. She's gone. Marcus and Lydia have um, lost their little daughter. She got really sick and died. Paul, what, what, are, what, are, you, what are the Lord's words of comfort for us? What, what are the Lord's end-time words for us? Can, can you please sort out some of the realities for them? Because they're really hurting. They, they need to know if the, the end-time events are pre-tribulational or, or, or pre-wrath or, or mid-tribulational or post-tribulational. They really want to know if, it, if it's pre-millennial or it's post-millennial or it's amillennial. They, they desperately need to know these things, Paul. When you stand at the side of a grave, the construction of an eschatological model is not what you need. You need to know something about the truth of Jesus' heart and what he's going to do to help you. In our grief, Paul, does the Lord have some big hope for us? Keith sent me a a letter from a pastor that Tim Bahula sent along. One of our missionaries who recently said goodbye to his wife with a desperate illness, leaving him with six children to raise. Another pastor wrote this. I am seated beside a bed in a nursing home. They call it a rehabilitation center, and for a few fortunate residents, it might be. But for most, this is clearly their last stop on earth. They require constant care, far more than exhausted family members can give them. They must be stretched and turned, bathed and diapered between doses of medicine and regular feedings. Not very much unlike the way their lives began years earlier. Perched vigilantly in my chair, I gaze into the face of the man lying in the bed beside me. Though he is sleeping, his trembling hands flail about violently as if he is beating back some unseen enemy. His constant motion wakes himself every 30 seconds or so, so that he cannot rest. He jerks and snorts, and when his eyes open, he searches for me to see if I am there. Sleep itself is wearing him out sucking his body deeper into a quicksand from which he cannot extricate himself. He hardly looks any more like the man who mentored me, discipled me, baptized me, taught me Bible stories, carried me on his shoulders, fathered me. He has been brought here after a perforated ulcer, after surgery, after his system has gone septic, after the hospital can no longer help. The unwelcome agent in his bloodstream is overwhelming his body. For 79 years, he had never been admitted to a hospital. 
But the healthy man I knew six weeks earlier has been replaced by this shriveled, featherless bird who cannot stretch a naked wing and fly. We had rehearsed this moment. Many times through the years, we talked about eschatology or end times. He was convinced, he was a convinced dispensationalist. I was and am a historic premillennialist. I would tease him about the inconsistency of his rejection of a gap in Genesis 1-1 on hermeneutical grounds, but his insistence on placing one between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. Guilty. He would respond that I didn't know what to do with Israel and the Jews in Romans 11. Banter like this between us was never tense, never uneasy, always joyful and light. He was glad that I was my own man and didn't believe something just because he did. That I was able to think through issues and not feel obligated to land where he was. The eschatology that mattered the most to us, however, and from which we took the greatest comfort was personal eschatology. The biblical teaching on what happens to us at the end of our earthly lives. Repeatedly, our phone conversations and discussions turn to what awaits us at and beyond death. Especially as he grew older. My father had a rock-solid confidence in his Savior's ability to see him through the valley of death's shadow. With no hint of fear or remorse, he would speak of the end of life and tell me that once death was both inevitable and imminent, he did not want his physical life to be prolonged. To be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. So he would say, don't deny me my promotion." Christ had turned what for most is the object of fear into a promotion for my father. As a result, he made me give him my word that I would not artificially prolong his life and keep him out of heaven when the end was near and unavoidable. Sitting by his bed, all those prior conversations comforted my sisters and my mother and me. When a few days later he became incommunicative, I watched my mother caress his arm with her slender, elegant fingers and whisper in his ear, it looks like the Lord is not going to raise you up again to preach his word. You go on home, and I'll meet you later. Though the nurse told us that it would be days before he died, he was in the presence of the Savior within 19 minutes of my mother's unselfish release. I often think we have missed the purpose of eschatology. We are not encouraged to be convinced of a system, but to be comforted by a promise. Father, I know you have words of comfort for your people today. Because in this section, you have identified its purpose. Therefore, You said, encourage each other with these words. Lord, I desire nothing less than to encourage, to do what you've called to be done with this text, to bring strength to God's people. Some in here, Lord, this is very raw. They're days away from this. For some, it's coming. For all of us, it will. 
So, Father, I pray that you, by your Spirit, might powerfully work in our lives today. Burn this into our lives with joy, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I want to look at two things with you this morning. What is the promise here? And what do we most urgently need? All this talk about Jesus coming, and people wrote to, to Paul and said, what, what, how, do, how do our dying loved ones fit into this? You've told us about the coming of the Lord. And, and by the way, future issues are meant to affect our present life choices. Please, please understand that. This is never, ever an exercise in, in simply intellectual stimulation. This is never about education. This is about affecting our present life choices and affecting our present emotions. We're hurting. If we aren't hurting, we will be hurting, or we have been hurting. At our prayer time this morning before the services, we were rehearsing some of the great saints of Calvary who are now in the presence of the Lord. Some of the amazing people who walked with God. I had a mom and dad in there with me whose daughter went home earlier than everybody would have thought. This stuff is real. What God has to say with us, to us really matters. And he says this in verse 13. Brothers, sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. This is a big hope text. That's what this text is all about. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Can I get some enthusiasm about that? <laughs> That's a good thing, don't you think? We'll be with the Lord forever? Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The purpose of the letter in this particular this section is to infuse courage when your legs will hardly hold you up. To breathe life and breathe hope when every gasp seems to take you further away from consciousness. If you've never been there, you will be. This will address the wounds of hearts. Stuff we urgently need to hear. Because Jesus wants us to know that we don't grieve the same way everybody else does. 
says here, I don't want you grieving like the rest of men who have no hope. Grieve, yes. Sadness, yes. But not. Not like those who have no hope. There's a setup here for courage. How to help in in handling our grief. How and, and when we grieve and why we grieve differently. He says here, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the setup for courage. We believe that Jesus... It's not true because we believe it. We believe it because it's true. Jesus died and rose again. This is what we believe. This is our good news. This is the gospel. And in believing that, we believe that he died to take our sin punishment upon himself. The sins that were killing us and that would cause us to perish for all eternity have been paid for by Jesus Christ. And the fact that he rose again means that God the Father has accepted the payment of Christ. Jesus rose, therefore sin has been defeated and death is dead. This is what we believe, Paul says. This is the setup for why you don't grieve like all the others who have no hope. Because you believe this to be true. What Jesus did at Calvary has changed everything. Sins have been sacrificed for. Death has been defeated. Everlasting life has been promised. The results are fixed. No doubts. By receiving him, you receive all of this, Paul says. When you are in Christ, you believe that Jesus died and rose again. You have all of the benefits and results of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. To those in him, those who have fallen asleep in him, those who are in him, have a relationship with Christ, live differently. Paul sets it up a little earlier in the chapter by saying that our lifestyles demonstrate this truth, that we live differently. We have a different look about ourselves. In verse 3, it talks about us being set apart for God's purposes, which means we live differently in terms of sexual purity. We live according to what it is to be, as he called in the chapter just before, holy ones, set apart ones, living differently. We love each other with a deep, deep love in in, uh, verse 9. In verse 11 and 12, we, we have a respectable industriousness about ourselves. We live differently because we expect Jesus to come back and get us. Not only do we live differently, but we die differently. Death, you'll notice in the text, has been changed in its description to sleep. Fallen asleep three times. That's the word that's that's the phrase that's used here to describe those who are in Christ. They have fallen asleep. The word, in fact, the Greek word that's used in, in that is called koimaterian. It's the word we get cemetery from. It means a place of rest. Those in Christ have fallen asleep. Not literally asleep. This is not talking about un, being unconscious or soul sleep or anything of that nature. It's literally saying our falling asleep to imply that there will be a waking up. Death in its absolute sense has been overcome. 
the body goes to sleep. Now, by the way, this description is never used of Jesus. It never says anywhere in the scripture that Jesus fell asleep. Jesus died. Jesus took upon himself the full force of death so that we would only go through the valley of the shadow of death and fall asleep. There's a distinction. Jesus died and rose again. Is made it different for us. We not only live differently and die differently, but we are in a different place when we die. It says that um, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, if, uh, if I said to you, uh, Lynn is going to bring the kids to church, it would, you would assume, therefore, that the kids are with her, Right? Well, this is what this text is saying. God is saying, God has said, I will bring with Jesus, when he comes, those who have fallen asleep in him. That means that they're with Jesus. We know that. That's what the text says here. God will bring with Jesus. The soul goes away from the body. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The Hebrews called the nefesh part, the spirit, the soul. That's why Paul could say, I prefer to be away from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions or rooms or, or whatever you makes your heart soar. The continuation of life after the body dies for us is an extension of his own risen life. In John 14, 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you you will also live. But for the unbeliever, this talks about those who have died in him, in Christ. For the unbeliever, death remains an untamed enemy. Any shred of confidence or hope is without merit and just speculation. We believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so we believe that those who have received Jesus Christ and salvation through him in this life and have fallen asleep in Jesus will come with him when he comes. That's what we urgently need to know. But what is it that the Lord has promised us and our loved ones who are no longer with us but are with him? It says in the text, if you follow along, according to the Lord's own word. That that puts, I mean, we're we're talking about God's word here anyway, but that puts this whole package in a, a sense of authoritativeness. This is not speculation. This is not the musings of those with advanced degrees in missing the point. This is... The Lord's own word to you. This is his encouragement to you today. This is what he wants you to know. This is how it will be at the end. You can bank on this. This is the process that Jesus is going to follow when he comes. We, verse 15, who are still alive, (laughs) you need to know that the Apostle Paul, in describing this, leaves every opening for the possibility that Jesus Christ would return in his own lifetime. He's talking to the Thessalonians believer and he's saying, we who are still alive when Jesus comes back. 
for 2,000 years. Believers have been able to say that. We who are alive. When Jesus comes back. Because you realize that some believers in some century are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. He might come back before the end of this service. You might have a demonstration of this text lived out before you. That's how Paul records this. We who are alive. Who are left till the coming of the Lord. And here's something that we didn't know. It's new. We'll certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh Aha. Because he says, for the Lord will come down. The Lord will come down from heaven. One command, a loud command. I think it's the same command that, that Jesus spoke into the tomb of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come out. The loud command of the Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What makes us distinct, what defines us from everybody else in the world, is we hear the voice of the Lord. In John chapter 5, verse 25, this is described for us. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. A loud command. His, the ones who are, belong to Jesus Christ, will hear this voice. A loud command. It says it's the kind of command that a ship commander gives. It, it has the ring of authority. It has the, the ring of urgency. Not only will there be a command from the Lord, but it says there'll be a shout of the archangel. Will it be Michael? I don't know if it'll be Michael. Who's he shouting to? I I don't know for sure. Maybe he's shouting to the elect angels. It's time. It's time to gather with the Son of Man. Go and get the church. There'll be a trumpet blast. God's own horn. Isaiah 27, 13. He summons the exiles from Assyria and Egypt home. This same trumpet call. And this first result of the perusia, or the coming of Jesus Christ, during his descent, it says the dead will come up. They'll come with. There'll be a reunion of the spirit and the resurrected body. Christ has come back to get his sleeping bride, the church. First, they will be granted prominence. That's what the text says. There will be no disadvantage, Paul says, to those who've fallen asleep. They will be ones who rise first. That's a new element in the teaching. You understand? But not only does he say that. And after that, he says, then he says, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the air. The still alive ones. The awake part of the bride of Christ. Because it says those who are in Christ, the awake part of the bride of Christ, will be caught up, will be snatched up to catch up with the rest. Remember when Dr. DeYoung was here and he said, there's coming that moment when there will be that... That word, by the way, that's used here in this snatched up word is harpagasomatha, which means forcefully... Uh, some, the suddenly, uh, an irresistible suction that thump, those who are alive will be thump, and caught up together 
to meet those who have already been brought with Christ and they'll be gathered together with the Lord. It says in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 that it'll be the twinkling of an eye. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I know that's the motto of many nurseries and churches. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) But it really is a text about the coming of the Lord, in case you didn't know. We will not all fall asleep in death, but we will all be changed. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Some of the limitations of our physicalities will be adjusted, like gravity, like the, um, the impassibility of solid matter. Maybe today. The Lord will come down. The dead in Christ will come up. Those still alive will be caught up and catch up. Which, by the way, um, in the Latin, is called the rapture. The rapture of the church. When Christ comes to get his bride. And um, on that day, Christians will be gone. I would suggest to you that if you're an unbeliever, it would not be good for you to be in a plane where the flight Christians. You know what I'm saying? It would not be a good day for you. In fact, when, if you're not a believer here today and you're planning on flying anytime soon, you ought to interview the captain and the co-captain. You ought to say, are you guys believers? Because if you're believers, I'd better not fly in this plane. You understand what we're talking about here? Instantaneously. The rapture will occur. In fact, Paul is describing here how the rescue from the wrath to come will happen. He said in in chapter 1 at the very end that Jesus will come and rescue us from the coming wrath. He is describing here how the bride is going to be rescued from the coming wrath. Jesus is going to come down and get his church. And there'll be this great reunion together in the air with the Lord. That's what it says in the text, doesn't it? That's what will happen. There's four withs here that are really exciting. In verse 14, it says, those with Jesus will be together with the living, verse 17, to be with the Lord forever. With these words, encourage each other. Now, Julia and your sisters, I know these are words that encouraged you yesterday. Your mom is with the Lord. You're looking for that great reunion day when, when we'll be together with the Lord forever. And by the way, this is a description of being with the Lord, meeting him in the air. It is not the same as the description in Zechariah 14.4 where Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives and there's a big earthquake. These seem to be different events. At least I can't reconcile the two. You can judge for yourself. This is in keeping with what Jesus promised. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you. That where I am, there you may be also. Paul's simply saying Jesus is going to come good on what he promised. It's what he said he would do. The big hope of reunion. I'm looking so forward to that day. There's some really neat people who aren't around anymore that I'm looking forward to being with again. I like reunions, especially when people are gone for a long time. I remember the time when our second son, Jordan, went to get his brother, our first son, Graydon, in Tanzania. Been away for almost a year. It seemed like a lifetime. To escort him back to us. We all met together in the airport. There was never a day I looked forward to more than that day. Well, maybe the last day of organic chemistry, but. <laughs> or actually, maybe, yeah, maybe my wedding day. That's right. So, so it, was a, it, was a, it was a close third. But you understand what this is? This that Paul is writing about is the grand wedding event. When the bridegroom comes for his bride. For the consummation of the relationship. And in Christ forever with Christ. To be adorned by the rewards of righteousness. Revelation chapter 19 verse 8. To go to the marriage supper. Later to invite those who... Those other believers of the other ages to the wedding supper. Blessed are those who will be invited, it says, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. To to gaze at the bride and his bridegroom. This is the getting the bride event. Not the judgment on the earth event. Because there's no warning here. No date. The bride had to be ready, you know. The ancient, ancient Near East presentation, once the engagement had occurred, the bride had to be ready. Whenever the father had decided that it was time for the marriage to take place, he'd tell the son, go get your bride. Well, if you're in Christ, the engagement has taken place. We have received the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee of what is to come. There's nothing yet waiting. There's nothing yet that has to happen. Just the father to say to the son, it's time to go get the bride. That's all that's left. That's why Paul could say, encourage each other with these words. If you die in the Lord... You won't miss this event. If you're alive and awake in the Lord, you won't miss this event. That's the encouragement from Paul. The question this morning for you is Are you in the Lord? Are you in the Lord now? Father, I, I just, as we wind up this. Amazing text this morning. I pray, Father, that you would 
search our hearts in terms of the issue of readiness. There is, there is nothing left to happen between now and the coming of the Lord. It, it seems to me, Lord, the most simple understanding of what you want us to, to get from this is that we are to be people who are ready and waiting. We live differently. We look differently. We die differently. We wait differently. We wait with hope, sure hope. Father, I, I just pray this morning that, that it would not be so, that, that there would be anyone in this room who is not ready for the coming of the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ died for our sins that whoever would receive him would have eternal life. It's a, a willingness of heart to stop being rebellious and submit to God. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that is among us this morning, please, please draw all lives to yourself. Because I know you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to you. So that on that day when the, the amazing bridegroom comes for his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, we will all be there for the greatest reunion of all time, to be forever together. Lord, may this be so. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I think we all agree that that comfort doesn't come from systems of eschatology. It comes from the truth that Jesus Christ is promised to come and get us. And that our loved ones who have died in Christ are with him. And we will see them again and we will be with them forever. That's the blessed hope. To be with Christ and to be with God's family forever. I wonder though as we complete this time together this morning, uh, maybe there's someone out here who says, you know what, I'm not ready for the coming of the Lord. I am not. I, I have never responded to Christ, but, but today I would, I would like you to pray for me as you close in prayer. I'm going to invite everybody just to, to bow their heads for a moment because this is, a, this is an important moment for people to just have some, some time with Christ alone. Are you sitting out here this morning saying, if Jesus Christ comes back right now, I'm not ready. And and people, I need to tell you, there's no do-over here. This is a one-time event. This is it. When Christ comes, that's it. And there's nothing preventing him from coming today. There's nothing that guarantees you will live past today. You either die in Christ or you don't. If you don't die in Christ, you won't be at this event. So if there's someone in here this morning who Christ has spoken to you through this presentation of the fact that he's coming, would you just slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I'm not going to embarrass you. I, I sure want to pray for you. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm not ready for this event. Anybody? Father, because you alone have the key to unlock a heart 
that is hard towards you turned away from you. I pray, Lord, that you would open up hearts and draw them to yourself. How great our desire is that everyone we know here, our community, would come to know our Jesus who we love. So we're looking so forward to that great event of reunion, to be with the Lord forever. So our Father, those who've put their hands up this morning, would you, would the Spirit of God move in and finish the work of salvation? Because that's your work. Only you can do that, I pray. For the rest of us, Lord, who are, maybe have touched some some heartstrings this morning just to think about some of the people we love who are gone but know you and we long so much to be with them. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged all over again with big hope knowing that someday, someday, someday we're going to be together. And thankfully those who've gone on before us who love Christ are with you, safely with you, in your presence. Uh, May these words, Lord, Continue to ring in our heart as encouragement, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I would encourage you as, um, as you leave this morning that if your heart is not right with the Lord, but he is speaking to you and, and you, you want to know for sure that you could be ready for when Christ returns, our pastors are going to be up here at the front. You come. Or if, if your heart is, is heavy or you need a, just a prayer of encouragement, you come as well. and We'll be happy to pray with you as you leave this morning.